Well, good morning. Welcome to Asante Church. My name is Alex Dennis. I get to be one of the pastors here. And uh, man, if it's your first time here, welcome. If it's your second time, welcome back. If it's your 57th time, welcome home. We're glad that you're here. Uh, I want to talk about bad bosses today. I know we've all had bad bosses. Um, I think the worst boss that I ever had was when I worked at UPS. Um, I was on the day shift, and it was getting ready to be peak season. Um, this was the kind of boss that you just never did anything right. Um, I think probably the worst part was the boss that was directly over me, my, uh, my sort aisle manager. I was one of the guys that as boxes came in off 55-foot trailers, uh, you'd read the zip code. I had to memorize every zip code in the United States and then correlate it to one of nine belts behind me. Um, it was about 115 degrees in the hub that I worked in. I wasn't like the glorious part of UPS. All these guys on package trucks making them dollar bills, all right? I was, uh, I was in the, the warehouse. I was in the hub making 11.50 an hour, feeling like a boss, you know, bringing home 2.50 a month. So, uh, man, I remember my sort aisle supervisor, man, he was super cool. Yeah, everything was fine between us, but his boss was the world's biggest jerk. And I went in there feeling like an athlete, feeling like for the next five to six hours, I'm going to pour out my blood, sweat, and tears. I'm going to get these boxes to where these boxes need to be, because that's what God designed me to do. And uh, he didn't see it that way. Uh, I was working hard. I was working fast. At one point, I was the fastest sorter in the whole hub, and it just was never enough for him. And I realized how bad of a boss this guy was when he went to asked me to be a manager, to go from the working side to the managerial side. And the whole time he was promoting me, he was cussing me out. And he was telling me everything I was doing wrong, I guess just to, to tear me down so that he could really build me up. And when he said, hey, I think you'd make a great manager. Hey, what's your name? <laughs> I was like, bro, bro, I work so hard for you. What's going on right now? We have bad bosses. Chances are you could be under a bad boss right now for a number of reasons. They don't see your worth. They're not a good leader. I would say you're probably under a lot more bad bosses than you actually think that you are under. I think we put ourselves under the authority of a lot of bosses that we have no idea. We've actually put ourselves and submitted ourselves to their authority. And I think for some of us, it's this boss. It's this authority in our lives of culture. We're going to follow whatever culture is putting in front of us, and I think probably as believers, a lot of us have broken away from that. We're going to be in the world, but not of it. But I think what we can fall into the um, slippery slope of is this boss of politics. And we can think that based off of whatever political landscape, whatever political theater is going on around us, that our lives are either made or they are broken. For some of us, it might just be finances. It may be that our money is our God. It may be that our money is our source of comfort or our status for others. Probably the younger in here uh, could be influence. It could be the social media that we expose ourselves to, the screens that are in front of us all day, and the influence not only that we have on other people, but the influence that they have over us. We submit ourselves to all of these bosses, to all of these authorities. And I think really what we can do is we can break these bad bosses down into three essential um, items today. And the first one is reason. I live this way. I do these things. I act this way because I think dot, dot, dot. It's the logic side of things. I submit myself to 
experience. I act this way, I look this way, I do these things, I live my life this way because of how I feel. So we've got the head, we've got the heart. And I think for others of us, it could just be tradition. I look this way, I act this way, I do these things, I live this life because this is the way we've always done it. Those are three bad bosses. Three bad bosses that a lot of us, we may be under one of those bad bosses, we may be under a lot of them. They may be looking to promote you and cussing you out at the same time this morning. But there's a fourth boss, and that is the boss, the authority of revelation. And that is, I look this way, I act this way, I do these things, I live this lifestyle because God says so. For the believer, we are supposed to be under the authority, under the headship, under this boss of revelation. And this revelation is the written word of God, and that is the Bible. And the Bible, the written word of God, is supposed to point us to the living word of God, which is Jesus. And in Jesus, and in this revelation, and under this authority, we trust, we follow, and we do all the things that Jesus does, all the things that Jesus said. So, our problem is, now that we know we have bad bosses, we have a good boss, now the issue is going to be authority. I think a lot of us have a problem with authority because at one point in our lives, submission has been an issue. Whether we just want to rebel against authority or we have had a bad run-in with authority. Chances are that you've probably been in a situation with a bad employer, with a bad leader who burnt you. You could have been in a position in a church where there is church hurt because of the spiritual leadership, the spiritual authority in that church mishandled what God entrusted to them. It could have been a marriage. It could have been a relationship. You trusted your heart, your feelings, your everything to somebody, and they absolutely ruined their chance. We're broken people. We do broken things. Hurt people hurt people. But this morning, I would say when we put ourselves under the authority, under the boss of revelation, and that is God's word that points us to Jesus, when we put our lives in the hands of Jesus, then that is a submission we don't have to worry about because that is authority that will never be misused. Jesus is never going to start off strong and then finish weak. Jesus is never not going to be there for you. Jesus is never not going to be doing exactly what he needs to be doing in your life to make you more conformed into his image. So we submit ourselves. And I promise you, if you have an issue with submission, if you have a problem with authority in your life, let me promise you this morning, this will be the one place that it will never run astray. This will, never, this will be the one place that it will never hurt you when you trust Jesus. So, Last week, last week we were given an invitation to follow Jesus. Jesus invites four of the disciples to follow him. Today we receive two reasons to submit to his authority as we follow him. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 28 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, used to in churches, you would hear people turn there in their Bibles. Now you just, you don't hear anything because they're finding it in their phone. And that's good too. If you find it in your phone, just make sure you don't find it on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. All right, let's focus in. First point this morning is Jesus has authority in his teaching. Why should we follow Jesus? Why should we submit ourselves to his authority? Because he has authority in his teaching. Verses 21 through 22, John, Mark Mark writes, and they went into Capernaum. 
And immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. That's a lot of words, and for a lot of us, if we don't really know these fancy uh, Jewish words, then it's not going to really make a lot of sense to us. So let's take some time this morning. Let's really set the scene here. They are in Capernaum. Remember, Jesus is coming up from his Judean ministry. He has entered Galilee. He is moving to Capernaum. Jesus and his new disciples, they settle on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is important because this is where all of his ministry and some of his greatest nature miracles are going to take place over the next years of his ministry. Now, the Sea of Galilee, seven miles wide, 13 miles long, and this bad boy is just full of fish. I don't know if we have any fishermen in the house, but this would be a place that you would want to take vacation. The Galilee area, the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum especially, was a major port city. That means that it was full of Jews, it was full of Gentiles, and it was full of Romans. That's important because, remember, John Mark is writing this to a Roman audience, convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah. And for Jesus and his disciples, Capernaum, this was the new base of operations. Now, it says that it was the Sabbath. What does that mean? Now, the Sabbath for them would have been Friday at sundown all the way to Saturday at sundown. Just basically for us, just think this is Sunday morning. This is a time that they set aside to do nothing and focus on the Lord. It's, it's Sunday from when we wake up to when we go to church to when we go home, they didn't have TVs. There was no NFL. They didn't watch any football until when they went to sleep that night. That would have been Sabbath, Friday sundown, Saturday sundown. And then Jesus, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue. Now, this is interesting. I love this little bit of history. Uh, again, we're just going to nerd out for a little bit. There's around 200 synagogues in Capernaum, and they are located Anywhere, you can kind of think of these as, as church plants, um, but not so much. A little bit more established. They would have had a place to meet that wasn't uh, a cafeteria. <laughs> they would be located anywhere there were 10 or more Jewish men over the age of 13. So if there's over 200, you do the math, that's quite a bit. I'm not that quick on my toes. Think local church building. This is the assembly hall. This is where scripture was read and taught. This is where worship and education took place. This is where they gathered for all their church functions. And then Jesus preaches. And in typical Mark fashion, and again, because Peter is orating this and Mark is writing it down, I just think it's really funny here that, that Mark through Peter, Peter through Mark, he doesn't talk about anything that Jesus preaches on. He just rushes to this point in Jesus' ministry where he begins preaching. He doesn't talk about what he preached, but he talks about how he preached it. How did he preach it? Man, he preached with authority. We know that because it says he preached with authority, and it says it was not as the scribes. Now, this is another one of those words we have to break down. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were interpreters of the law of Moses, you remember the story in the Old Testament? Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets all this, these laws from God. He gets the Ten Commandments, comes down, breaks them, goes back up, all that fun stuff. That is what they were teaching and interpreting. You can trace these guys all the way back to the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, and they took pride in what they did. You find that Ezra 7, verses 6 and 11. These guys are later called rabbis. 
these guys were like celebrity scholars. They were the Jordan Petersons. They were the, uh, a little bit brighter than the Joe Rogans of their day. Jordan Peterson without all the, uh, all the Canadianism, all right? Not probably near as fun to listen to either. These guys were Pharisees. They were Sadducees. These are the guys that Jesus would end up opposing, and they would end up opposing Jesus, eventually putting him to death. Now, it says not as the scribes. Not as the scribes, because the scribes took their authority from the traditions of men. They prided themselves on who taught them. Who was your rabbi? Who was your professor? Oh, I, I taught under Smarty Pants McGee for 17 years, and he taught me all these things. And I'm going to teach and preach to you from the things that he said to me. Listening to one of their teachings, listening to one of their sermons, one of their gatherings where they would interpret the law would have been like reading a bibliography. Any of those of you who have ever had to write a paper in MLA format, APA format, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It would have been chocked full of references. The problem with their teaching is nothing that they were teaching was original thought. That is the scene in which Jesus steps into. That is the scene in which Jesus enters the synagogue and begins to preach. All right, let's contrast this. Jesus comes, he preaches. What's the biggest difference? First of all, Jesus was the source. Jesus isn't citing anybody, and so when he is preaching, when he is teaching, he's not stopping to say, and this is what this teacher and this teacher and this teacher, that we pride ourselves under the tradition of, this is what they said. No, he's saying, this is the truth. This is the way that we live life. He was the authority. He was the source. And a lot of what these guys would have been teaching on within the Old Testament would have been surrounded by one person that was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now a person that was filled with the Holy Spirit, the only one at that time, who he received at his baptism was preaching before them. Think of the power of what was taking place. These guys were reading stone tablets, basically, and now Jesus is painting this beautiful picture for them right before their eyes. Where did his authority come from? It came straight from God, his Father. There was no debate about it. He was the truth. This man was the Son of God. And what was the result? It left them astonished. Never before had they ever experienced anything like this new teacher. He teaches with such authority. And Jesus knew something. See, Jesus comes in and he talks and then he pairs it up with something else. And what he pairs it up with is about to show his true authority. Now he has to kind of keep it on the down low as we're about to see, but it comes with a teaching and that teaching comes with an illustration that is a prime example of his power. The only way I could describe this in our cultural context would be to relate this all the way back to June 27th, 2006. There was something called TED Talks that began to happen. Now, TED stands for Technology Entertainment Design. Did anybody know that? I sure as heck didn't know that. I, I was reading this week, and I was like, I should probably know what TED stands for. 
before I say that in front of a bunch of people. That's what it stands for. Basically, what would happen is a professional in any one of these three industries, technology, entertainment, and design, would get up in front of a room, and they would give a beautiful speech. I mean, this thing was practiced. It was polished. I remember back in this time, I was a youth pastor, and I'm trying to figure out how to preach, how to teach, how just to get in front of people and complete a sentence, and people understand what I was saying. And I would go on betterteachingbetterpreaching.com. That's a, that's a website you can go to. Only for pastors, though. You can't go to it if you're not a pastor. All right, don't, don't even try. Jesus is watching. Um, and there would, there would literally be article after article of what you can do to preach better based off of these TED Talks. Now, what would happen is a professional would stand up in front of a room much prettier than this one, and they would talk with authority on whatever they were specialized, a specialist in whatever career they were a professional in. And it became so big that by September, remember the first video goes online of a TED Talk, June 27, 2006. By September, it had reached more than 1 million views. Now, this is the days of OG YouTube. All right, a million views doesn't seem like much today, but this was unheard of back in this time. It was such a craze that people were just all about it. People wanted to know three ways you can brush your dog's three teeth and it changes your life in three weeks. I mean, that was just like every TED Talk seemed to go just like that. People to today have watched the 2,100 TED Talks that are available online more than one billion times. Now you take this, and this is, this is quite the pop culture craze back then. I think it's kind of died out now, but they're still doing it. And this kind of revolutionized public speaking for our culture. Now you take a bunch of boring, probably crusty guys preaching something that they really had no authority other than what they had heard from other people, and you bring the actual source into the equation. These people were left absolutely astonished. I mean, Jesus preaching, Jesus teaching was a TED Talk on steroids. It was amplified all the way up to 11. These people were astonished. And so my question for you this morning is when you spend time with Jesus, as you are reading through his word on your own, as you are suffering through a sermon here at Asante Church, what is your stance where do you meet him? Are you astonished by his word? Are you astonished by his person? Not are you astonished at the delivery? Not are you astonished at what you're able to uh, comprehend as you read, but the content in which you are reading. Does the person of Jesus leave you astonished? Because every time we come into his presence, that is exactly where we should be. If we're not, we're not doing it right. If we're not, we need to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, illuminate this text that you inspired so that I can understand it in a way where it will not just change my mind, but it will change my heart, that it will change my life, that I will leave this time with you absolutely transformed. Jesus always pairs a teaching with an illustration, and this particular illustration involves a demon. Now, this is absolutely scandalous to these people. We see that this demon is actually sitting right there in the synagogue. Where do demons hide the most? I would say they hide in religion. We'll cover that in a second. But really, before we dive into 
what Jesus does next, I think what we need to first dive into is what is a demon? What do demons do? I think we come from a lot of different places, theologically, denominationally. So let's look to the scripture. Let's see what these things are, where do they come from, how they interact with us, where they interact with us, what we do with them. So buckle your seatbelts for Demons 101. It says that they were, there was an unclean spirit, as we're about to read. Now, an unclean spirit just means demon. We see that 63 times within the New Testament. So who are demons? What is a demon? There are four different stances on this. One is that they are a pre-Adamic evil race. That just means they're a race of evil that were around before humankind, before Adam, before Eve. Number two is the thought that they are spirits of evil men. Number three is that they are products of fallen angels that we see in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, who mated, who had children with the daughters of men, who created the giants of old, men of renown, these things called Nephilim. And because these immortal, eternal spirits had relations and children with physical beings as their physical bodies would have died and decayed of their offspring, the spirit would have remained here on the earth, running around, ruling. So I think it's probably a mix of that with the fourth take is that demons are actually fallen angels. I think it's a mix of one, three, and four here. So how do they operate? I think we can see this all throughout scripture. You can probably notify or notice some of these things in your life, recognize them. One, they operate under Satan. Again, one-third of heaven fell in opposition, in rebellion to God. We see that Revelation 12.4. Now, they probably stuck to their rank system. There is a rank of angels in heaven. They probably just took that and brought it right down here in opposition to the God they rebelled against. We see that in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. We also see that Satan is a title, it is a position, a commanding role that means accuser, that means adversary. And so when they are operating against us, when they are try to, trying to influence us and oppress us, that is often how they are doing it, is accusing us into making us think that the identities in which Jesus and his perfect work on the cross died for us to actually live and operate without of, that is a lie. And if they can get you to doubt and to think that your identity is a lie, then they have won the battle because most of what we do as believers and as humans is based off of who we know we are, who we see ourselves as, especially in the image of God. We see that some of them roam freely. We see that here today in verses 23 through 24, but we also see that some demons are bound, and, and we don't really know why, but we see that in 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6. We see that they are powerful personalities, but they are not all-knowing. We see that in verse 24 today. And we see throughout Scripture that their activity ramps up upon Jesus coming on the scene. And in Revelation 6 through 19, we see that their activity will ramp up again as he returns. Basically, think of them as knowing that their time is up, that their end is near, and so they're going to do everything that they can. This is the fourth quarter from them. They can't just stick to a field goal at this point. They've got to throw the Hail Mary, and it's got to connect, and it's absolutely not going to connect because Jesus is going to jump up in there and swat that thing to the ground. You lost, stupids. <laughs> we have to say silly in my house, so I'm sorry. All right. We also see in Daniel 10, 10 through 12, that they rule over geography. So maybe this was a demon that was a part of that Capernaum area. 
And then we go to their strategy. We see it's their job to promote disunity, to propagate false doctrine, this health, wealth, happiness, prosperity gospel, this, um, this gospel of I have to work my way to Jesus to earn my salvation. That's works-based righteousness, false doctrines. We see it is their job to inflict disease and illness. It is their job to cause mental difficulties and illnesses. And it is their job to hinder Christian growth. So, usually about this time, the question always pops up. So, okay, can a demon possess me? Can a demon possess me if I am a believer? And I will say, as far as I read and understand in Scripture, they cannot possess believers because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And anything where the Holy Spirit takes up 100% of the space, there is no percentage left for anything else to get in there. And so if you are loving Jesus, if you are operating out of the Spirit, and the Spirit is within you because you have put your trust in Him to save you, then you have nothing to worry about. Now they can oppress you, and they can influence you, but they cannot indwell within you. Now if you don't know Jesus, that's a different story. And that's where we see this man today. Where do we see demons? This morning, we will see this demon in religion. We will see this demon in the synagogue. Religion is a perfect place to hide. One of the titles for the devil is Lucifer, the shiny one. He is parading in light. If you can take the good of the world and just barely twist it to go off the course of God's greatness, then you have won that battle. You have tricked that believer. They are hiding in plain sight. They are also in the world. They are influencing culture. They are influencing world events. They are in disguise. They are unknowingly around us. And I would say this, there's a, there's a temptation here that we're going to have just as we go through this. And that one is everything's a demon. And two, nothing is a demon. And I'll say neither of those are healthy. We fall somewhere in the middle. And that, yes, this is a reality that we have to deal with. But that doesn't mean that everything we see is out to get us. That doesn't mean nothing is out to get us. Paul writes and paints a beautiful picture that we are in a spiritual battle. That we go to war against things that are unseen in an unseen realm. And that leads us to the last place that we see them, and that is in rebellion. It is always against Jesus. You can look around. You can turn the news on. There are so many religions within the world that are just we're supposed to be cool with. Hey, everybody get along. We want unity. We want Islam. We want Hindus. We want Buddhists. We want this. We want that. But we don't want anything to do with Jesus. The disunity always comes with Jesus. That's because he is a threat. And so they, if they can live within religion and get people thinking that, no, I'm good, I can earn my salvation, no, I'm going to end up in heaven, when that is actually not the truth, then they have those people fooled. When really what they need is the Savior. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the one that we need to follow. If they can divert from that, they will. Before we go into this, we got just a little bit of time. So I got a little video clip for you, okay? This is from The Lord of the Rings, because what other movie would it be? You know me by now, biggest nerd you've ever known, okay? Uh, this is probably the truest um, scene of an exorcism in any movie. Now, we're not going to Pope's Exorcist, anything like that this morning. Uh, this is PG-13. We'll be all right. But check this out. Uh, it'll paint a picture for where we're headed.
Oh, we're going to watch it again. <laughs> yes. What do we see there? We see a man whose mind has been manipulated by the words of another who is being controlled by someone who is off scene. We see a man who, through Gandalf and his powerful staff, we're not going to see that in Jesus today, uh, they recognize Jesus' authority and have to bend the knee to it. We see a man who is transformed. Second point today. Jesus has authority over demons. Why should I submit myself to the authority of Jesus? Because Jesus has authority over demons. Verses 23 and 24. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So what do we see here? These two verses, we see that the demons recognize him. Who do they recognize Jesus to be? Who is Jesus to them? They recognize him for his humanness. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. But they also recognize his deity. Jesus Nazarene, the Holy Son of God. Now this is a picture that is painted over and over throughout the Gospels, but that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And even the demons recognize that. But notice this. Notice this in their titling of Jesus. That it is just who he is, but it's not necessarily who he is to them. So we take this titling of this demon or these multiple demons within this man, confronting Jesus, titling Jesus, and we compare that to how humans interact with Jesus when he encounters them, when they encounter him. Demons say, Holy One of God. That's what we just see here in verse, chapter 1, verse 23. Later on in Mark, we see that they say, Son of God, chapter 3, verse 11. And then we see, Son of the Most High God, in chapter 5, verse 7. Now, how do the humans interact with Jesus? They say, Lord, chapter 7, verse 8. They say, Teacher. That means that they are submitting themselves to his teaching, chapter 9, verse 17. They are saying, Son of David, recognizing where he came from, chapter 10, verses 47 through 48, and finally they say, Master, chapter 10, verse 51. You see, demons are addressing his position and his authority and his power. What these humans are addressing are his position, his authority, and their willingness to submit to that authority. The demons know who Jesus is. They knew well before ever coming into contact with him. Their theology is absolutely on point. But the problem with their theology is they don't see and they're not willing to submit to Jesus for who he really is. Their theology is a 10, but their belief, their belief is a zero. They were all resistance. They were zero submission. Where are you in that? Do you just recognize Jesus for who he is but not submit to him as Lord, not submit to him as teacher, not submit to him as master. This is the danger that we have, is we can come to church every single Sunday, and we can take on so much knowledge of Jesus, but if we never actually make him Lord of our lives, then what difference do we have in our lives than the demons? We are highly intelligent Christians by title only that don't actually bend the knee to Jesus that don't actually recognize his authority and ask it to rule and reign over our lives, that aren't actually submitting, putting our lives before Jesus, expecting change, longing for forgiveness, 
being put in right standing before God, being transformed from the messes that we were when the, the demonic things of this world ruled and reigned over our lives into who Jesus calls us to be by making us clean, pulling us out of darkness, transferring us into the kingdom of light. We see that they want to know his intentions. Now, this is cool because this shows their limited power. What have you to do with us? And this is creepy because when he says us, this demon, he is referring to there are multiple demons within this one man, within this one synagogue. Are you going to destroy us? There's utter terror. There is fear in this demon who usually brings utter terror and utter fear to other people. These demons within this man absolutely lose it. They know that Jesus is more powerful, and we continue on all the way from 25 to 28, and we finish out with this. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Man, that's an exclamation point. I don't want Jesus to ever have to say to me right there. That's a, you're about to get a whooping kind of exclamation point. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. What do we see in this demon? Is that the demons obey Jesus. The demons obey him. With absolute authority, Jesus quiets this demon down. It's not time for him to be fully known, even though the cat is kind of out of the bag. With absolute authority, Jesus cast this demon out. We just read a couple of weeks ago how Jesus already took care of this guy's boss after not having eaten for 40 days in the desert and being tempted by Satan. And now the goon squad is just getting rounded up and they're getting taken care of. Surely they will have known how Satan had to tuck his tail and run because Jesus is on the scene. And he is operating out of the will of the Father. 